Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Ropes and Gray Alumni Podcast. I'm Matt Rizzolo, an IP litigation partner based in our Washington, D.C. office. Today, I'm joined by my friend and Ropes and Gray alum, Alex Roberts. Alex and I were summer associates together back in 2007, and she then began her career as a litigator in the New York office, where she started a long love affair with the Lanham Act. Today, Alex is an associate professor at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law, where she teaches and writes in the areas of trademark and false advertising law, entertainment law, contracts, and law and literature. Alex, it's great to see you, and thanks so much for being here. And happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thank you. It's great to see you too, Matt. So I have a very important question to start things off. Hit me. Did I get the name of your institution correct? You nailed it. I know it's changed over the years. It's (laughs) kind of complicated. So let's get started with your uh, path post-Ropes and Gray. How'd you find your way to academia? Sure. So I am a PhD dropout. So my original plan was to be an English professor, and then um, I wound up in law school. And so I kind of, by the time I started at Yale, I had in the back of my mind that maybe I would try to pursue academia at some point. Um, So I spent about four years at Ropes and um, tried to keep writing a little bit on the side. And then at some point, I felt ready to make the leap. And um, I applied for a couple of fellowships and VAP positions, so visiting assistant professor. And I wound up as a VAP at BU teaching trademark law. And then I made my way over to UNH. So what was the most challenging thing about kind of going back to law school from a law firm? Um, I think the independence was the most surprising. So coming from a big firm where there's, you know, a lot of supervision, usually if you're a junior associate, you've got a mid-level, you've got a senior on the team, you've got a partner looking over everything you do, checking up on you, making sure you don't make mistakes. Um, So there are kind of a lot of levels of approval and sign-off that things go through. And then I was dropped into an environment where um, nobody was checking up on me. So nobody said, hey, I need to see your syllabus. I need to sit in on your class and make sure you're doing a good job. Um, I want to look at what the research that you're doing and, and see if it fits with you know, the strategic plan. So there was none of that. Um, that feedback is available in academia if you seek it out, and I have. So it's easy to find mentors and, and ask for help with teaching and research and things like that. But if you don't seek it out, um, you, you just have a lot of freedom. So that was an interesting kind of adjustment. So after BU, you, you eventually found your way up the road to UNH. How did that come about? Um, I went on the, the tenure track teaching market, which is a whole thing um, <laughs> that I'm happy to talk about. If anyone, any other alumni of Ropes are interested in law teaching, um, you're welcome to reach out. So I I had a couple of tenure track offers, but I really desperately wanted to stay in New England. That was where um, my family was. And so um, I joined UNH first as the director of the IP Center. So I was on the faculty, I was teaching, but I was also in this other kind of role, um, running a program. And then a couple of years later, there was a tenure track opening, and I applied, um, and they did a national search. And I was very fortunate to be able to move into that role and stay where I was. So being a law professor is not exactly a traditional nine-to-five job, right? What is your day-to-day like? Yeah, so I basically have two different kinds of days. So um, two or three days a week, I 
wake up early and I drive to campus and I teach one or two or however many classes. And then I really save the rest of the day for um, meetings with students, you know, office hours, students I'm advising on independent studies, students I'm coaching in the trademark moot court, things like that, uh, faculty meetings, meetings with committee members, um, and, you know, just lunches with colleagues. And so those days, those on-campus days, are really packed and really, um, you know, social. And then the other couple of days a week, I, uh, those are my work from home days. And I roll out of bed and I can be extremely productive, not talk to anybody all day. Those are the days that I work on my scholarship um, and I work on my, my class prep and I'm able to just get a lot done. That's a really nice fit with my personality. And that's also something that works, you know, with a longer commute. It seems like it really is a nice mix. You're, you're able to change things up day to day. So it's not, you don't get dragged into the monotony of anything, I guess. No, that's right. It definitely stays exciting. Um, so this semester, Tuesday is my crazy long day. I'm actually teaching on two different campuses. So I go to Concord, New Hampshire in the morning, and I teach trademarks. Uh, and then I jump back in my car, and I go to the main campus in Durham, and I'm teaching an undergrad class called Pop Culture and the Law, which is such a blast. Um, and I'm using, kind of building on my English background, we do some cultural theory, cultural studies kind of stuff. And then we also kind of I introduce the students to topics like trademark, copyright, First Amendment, right of publicity. Um, so it's a little bit of a survey, not trying to teach them doctrines, but, but just trying to kind of uh, whet their appetites, get them thinking about the ways in which um, law intersects with and influences culture and vice versa. That's really, really interesting. And I, I knew that you taught that pop culture and law class, and I've been fascinated by that for quite some time. How is it different teaching undergrads versus law students? I know for me, one of the things that got me interested in law was taking a law class in mm. undergrad. Um, the undergrads have been great. This is my second time teaching the class. They are babies. Um, I did a class, so each each class kind of centers on a different topic, a different pop cultural text. So I do a class on Comic-Con, I do a class on Beyonce's Lemonade, I do a class on tattoos, I do a class on emojis, um, I do a class on Grumpy Cat, I do one on like the Kardashians' Instagram feeds. So we come at it from a lot of different angles and we get to think about, oh, we did Starbucks yesterday. Um, so we get to think about kind of some of the branding issues as well as um, these, these different intersections with and things happening behind the scenes when it comes to law. Um, so the, the kind of their backgrounds are different and the questions that they're asking are different. So we were talking in the Comic-Con class about genericide and I put a slide up with a bunch of terms and one of the students said, uh, what's that word under aspirin? And I, and I looked up at the slide and I said, Xerox? And she said, yeah, I don't know that word. I've never seen that word before. And I was like, okay. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, when you're talking about pop culture and you're talking to 18-year-olds, you have to kind of adjust your frame of reference. Um, and the, whereas the law students are a little bit closer to my age, a little bit more similar frames of reference. Um, our law students are really impressive and I think they're always thinking ahead to kind of client relationships and client service and how would I handle this particular question um, if if I were to do it in my working life. You know, they do externships and they do summer associateships and so they're thinking in these really practical terms, which is great. Um, and the undergrads don't have that kind of 
um, perspective. So they're just kind of asking these really big picture questions. You know, I started talking on the first day and somebody said, well, what's the difference between copyright and trademark? And I was like, yes, that is where we need to start. Okay, let's take 10 steps back. Do the undergrads tend to ask more uh, completely random hypotheticals to you? Could you sue for this? What about this? <laughs> um, no, I have plenty of law students who do that. <laughs> um, yeah, the undergrads maybe do a little bit more free associating, but they are they're really diligent. You know, they're they're there paying attention, taking notes, and um, putting things together in ways that I've I've been really impressed by. I wasn't sure what to expect, and so that's been great. So, what's been your favorite class to teach? They all have a little something different to love. So trademarks is really my bread and butter. That's where most of my scholarship has been. Um, I've taught that class, I think, 10 times. I taught at BU, at Northeastern. I've taught an online version. I've taught it at UNH every year. So that, in some ways, that's my favorite in that kind of core sense. Um, entertainment law I teach as a seminar. So that's really nice because I usually have 10 or 12 students. They're 2Ls and 3Ls, um, sometimes foreign grad students. And they do these independent research projects on topics that they choose. And they kind of draw on their background. So I've had dancers. I have had singers, all different kinds of performers, choreographers. So they often kind of build on that knowledge that I don't have. And they do a really deep dive. And they end up teaching me a lot. So, um, so that's been really cool. I've taught first year contracts, which I love for completely different reasons. Um, I think just being part of students 1L fall experience when everything is totally brand new and they're totally overwhelmed, um, but they're, they're also really cohesive. Like they've got this, the class comes together and they bond um, and it, is, I, it felt special to be part of that. And then I mentioned the undergrad course, which is just, new and fun in a whole bunch of different ways. And, um, and I've had so much freedom to create it and, and put it together and make it what I want to be. So we've, we've all heard the, the expression publish or perish in, mm -hmm. in regards to academia. And you obviously are involved in a lot of different and diverse subject matter areas. I mean, what are some of the areas you've focused on recently on the scholarship side of things? So my most recent published piece um, came out over the summer. It's called Trademark Failure to Function, and it ran in Iowa Law Review. Um, and this piece is very close to my heart. It's kind of a core trademark article. Um, and it's about failure to function doctrine, so the very basic threshold requirement that in order to earn protection as a trademark or trade dress, something has to be used in a trademark way. In order for consumers to recognize it, to understand that it's functioning as a trademark, uh, and there are certain kind of indicators that we can look for that help us say, yes, something's being used in a trademark way, or no, it isn't. Um, but a couple of things that I focused on in the paper, one is that I think um, there's a tendency to, to pay a lot more attention to distinctiveness, inherent and acquired distinctiveness, and kind of ignore the role of use, the way in which something is used, but that interacts with distinctiveness, so that actually influences the distinctiveness analysis um, in a number of ways. So, so what, I, what I really advocate in the article is just for courts and for the USPTO and for lawyers to pay more attention. Um, and the, the piece has made a pretty big splash. So I have had a lot of feedback from practitioners, and it's great to kind of do work that isn't just pie-in-the-sky theory that other professors read, um, but that actually seems to have an impact on the way that people argue before the TTAB, for example. That's fascinating. So, so what you're saying is that 
uh, people who see some new word hit the lexicon, some new slogan, they shouldn't go rush to the PTO to try and register it. That's not going to fly. Uh, they can, but they have to use it as a trademark, right? As a source. And putting it right on the front of a T-shirt in huge font isn't necessarily using it as a trademark. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm putting the finishing touches right now on an article called False Influencing, which is my first foray into false advertising scholarship. So the piece looks at influencer marketing and explores how it works and why it's such fertile ground for deceptive practices. And it advocates for private companies to sue each other under the Lanham Act um, to curb misleading statements that their competitors make via the influencers whom they hire and pay. That's really interesting. So as someone who does a lot of work in the International Trade Commission, which has a similar unfair unfair competition statute to the Lanham Act, that's something that is somewhat music to my ears, although I imagine that some companies in those areas might be a bit hesitant to file such claims for uh, you know, the glass houses problem, if you will. Right, exactly. And I think um, that's been one of the things maybe holding companies back, the other being that they're really just looking to the FTC to take charge and, and do all the regulation in this area. But influencer marketing maybe started with like, you know, weight loss teas and teeth whiteners and um, products like that where maybe everybody's kind of overclaiming, but it's been expanding and expanding and now I'm seeing it for like Steinway pianos and um, Acura and different brands of cars and so everybody's turning now to influencers whether they are mega influencers like the Kardashians and the Jenners or whether they're um, micro influencers more kind of low level with followers in the tens of thousands Um, and there's just not a lot of there's not much of a check on what those influencers can say or how they say it. And so it, it tends to be the case that companies just kind of um, give them some guidance and then say, go off and do your thing and post and we'll pay you um, without monitoring and without really um, ensuring that the claims that the influencers make are the same kinds of claims that the company would make if they were doing it directly. So that's really my concern. I I think there's a lot of opportunity there for deception. So so I'd like to see a little bit more attention paid. That's interesting. I'm going to have to check that out. I'll look forward to reading that. Great. So you're a woman teaching in IP law, and that's been an area that has been historically very male-dominated that field. Has this presented any sort of unique challenges for you? You know, um, that may be true about the kind of IP bar. I think it's less true in academia. So I actually think we have pretty good parity, um, especially on the trademark and copyright side, a little bit less so um, when it comes to patents. But some of the founding scholars in my field are women, so Rochelle Dreyfus at NYU, Jessica Lippman at Michigan, Pam Samuelson at Berkeley. Those are really some of the founders of the field. Um, and as someone pointed out to me when I, when I first went into teaching, um, two things happened around the same time. One was that schools across the country suddenly realized they needed IP programs, and the other was that schools started to realize they needed to hire women. So, um, so that was a nice confluence where we we have a really good distribution. Another thing that's true about um, IP academics is they happen to be really supportive and really welcoming. Um, So I've found so many great mentors. And I I hear that that's not quite as true in certain other areas, right? So there are other conferences for other specialties that people go to that are a little more cutthroat, 
Whereas if you're presenting a, a trademark paper to a bunch of trademark people, they're going to engage with it in ways that are um, productive, supportive, kind, and really kind of collaborate to help you make something better. So the IP bar, I've found, can often be a very small world. It sounds like mm -hmm. the IP side of academia is also the same. Yeah, they, we really all know each other, which is nice. We have a whole bunch of conferences that we go to, um, and we see the same faces every time, so we establish some great relationships. You're also very active on social media, folks. Mm -hmm. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Lex Lanham if you're interested. Have you ever gone viral? I have gone viral a few times. Um, last year, I was at the International Trademark Association annual meeting in Boston, um, and there was a professor-only lunch. And we were in the room with a couple of executives from Duncan who talked about the rebranding, talked about some other things. Um, and I tend to live tweet in these, so I'll just share quotes and tidbits of the conversation and kind of broadcast to the world what's going on in these types of presentations. Um, and something that I shared there hit a nerve, and that ended up getting picked up by like 30 different newspapers. So all of a sudden, my tweet was getting published um, really broadly across the internet, and I think in the Boston Globe and some print publications, and I was getting phone calls. Um, so that was kind of a trip. It's a nice way to get a really broad audience really quickly when you have something to say. So how many followers do you have on Twitter? Oh, I think about 7,500. Very nice. Do you have a specific sort of social media strategy that you employ? Not exactly. Um, I, mostly, I mostly tweet about trademarks, false advertising, entertainment law. Um, there's probably some, some personal stuff, anecdotes about my kids interspersed. I try to keep it like 80% on topic. <laughs> so let me take you back now to your ropes days. How did you pick the firm and uh, what group did you, you start working in? I, I mentioned earlier you were a litigator. Yeah, I am a Boston girl and I come from a family of lawyers. So ropes and gray was a really obvious choice for me. Um, Chris Austin recruited me. And I split my summer back in 2007 between New York and Boston. And then I wound up staying um, in the New York office for my first two years out of law school, moving over to the Boston office for the next two years. I was mostly in IP litigation, as you mentioned, but I did a little bit of work with IP corporate um, and I did a little bit of general litigation. So I got to kind of work with a lot of different partners across offices, which was a blast for me. So any favorite ropes memories? Yeah, so the end of my first year, so 2009, uh, we went to the Central District of California for a trial for Nova Biomedical. So that was like Jim Badke, Gene Curtis, Matt Trotman, Simon Fitzpatrick, I think Brandon Stroy's still around, right? Andrew Ratch. Um, that was the team. We camped out, we took over a whole wing of a hotel, you know, with our paralegals and our gear and our wires and our files. Um, and that, that was just it, like round the clock prep. Um, and it was like summer camp. It was a lot of fun for me. I learned so much in those three weeks or whatever. Um, and, and that was really my, my truest and best litigation experience. Having just come off a trial <laughs> and still recovering from that, I could, I could certainly vouch for the learning experience. You always learn something new at trial. I mean, whether you're a junior associate or a senior partner, there's always something that pops up that you didn't expect, and it's always always an interesting experience. Yeah, if a if you're a first year, everything that pops up is something you didn't expect. <laughs> you just have no idea what's going on, and you're you're kind of um, paddling wildly to keep up. 
So were there any attorneys at the firm who stood out as particularly influencing your career? Yeah, so I spent most of my last year here actually working with Peter Brody in the DC office, even though I was in Boston, um, on some false advertising cases. And um, that was pretty formative for me. We also co-authored a trademark piece. Um, and we've stayed in touch a little bit. I also really enjoyed everything I got to do with Mark Spock in Boston. Um, all of his work, I think, is fascinating, and he's just a, a pleasure to work with. And they're both really good teachers. I think Ropes is full of um, kind of intellectuals and lawyers who are really interested in asking broader questions, you know, policy questions and theoretical questions and not just strategy about client service in the moment. And so as somebody who's thinking about going into teaching, um, that's a pretty cool thing to be around. So is there any aspect of working at Ropes that you think helped prepare you for your career teaching? I mean, I got a lot of exposure to a lot of things that I talk about now with my students. So I got to do some transactional trademark work um, some prosecution, some inter partes stuff that I draw from um, both in my scholarship and in my teaching and the litigation that I mentioned. Um, so that's been really useful. But being here was also what kind of revealed to me, you know, I enjoyed practice, but I love teaching and I am just feel like I've found my calling and I'm so happy now where I am. So I remember um, I was working with Peter and he pulled together a team and we were going to start a doc review and you know he gave me like 20 first years junior associates and he put them in a room and he said okay so you need to go teach them false advertising law and then you can tell them what to do with the documents and I said okay and I started working on a PowerPoint getting my notes together and I stood up in front of these 20 first years um, and I really walked them through section 43A1B and how does it work when you have a false ad claim under the Lanham Act. And that was like my best day. I was like, wow, I really love helping these junior lawyers understand um, the rationale behind what we're doing instead of just saying, here's some instructions for doc review. These are the things you're looking for. You know, click on this box when you see those things. So to me, that was a little bit of an indicator um, that, that my future could be in teaching and it might be time to start looking for something like that. And they're really interesting. As a, as a full-time professor, what advice would you have for practicing lawyers who are looking to either dabble in teaching as an adjunct or maybe even try to make a career change to teaching full-time? Yeah, those are, those are pretty different things, although they're related. So um, I know a lot of ropes lawyers do teach as adjuncts, and they're really good at it. They'll also tell you it's a ton of work. But if you're interested in um, getting that experience, I think you just reach out to the law schools near you and see what they need, let them know what you can offer. Um, and we're very often looking for adjuncts, for great adjuncts, and that's a really key role to play. And it's really nice for students um, to be able to have that type of interaction with somebody who's on the ground doing the work, and also um, to, to kind of include that networking piece so that they're getting to know practicing lawyers who might um, be helpful when they're ready to look for a job. That's always been something that has been a bugaboo for me when I look at how some publications rank law schools. The number of adjuncts is often mm -hmm. counted against them. Right. And for me personally, I thought that that was one of the most valuable things about going to law school in DC at GW where I did is that the exposure to adjuncts for all the reasons you just pointed out, these are the people who are doing that work on the ground every day. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there's a lot of strangeness and a lot that is objectionable about where those rankings come from. Um, And I I think that's a really valid point, right? So depending on the goals of the institution, depending on what the law school and the students think is worthwhile, there are a lot of reasons to value what adjuncts bring to the table. Um, The other part of the question that you asked was about full-time career law teaching. There are a lot of resources out there now. So it used to be kind of like a secret and you had to be in the know and you had to go to one of five top schools and and kind of be, be told the secrets. Um, And now there's a blog called Prof's Blog, and there are a lot of great posts um, and even a lot of articles about breaking into law teaching. Um, It's important to publish, so you've got to have some articles out there. No matter how impressive your practice experience is, you're not going to get a job unless you have at least one, but probably two or three either published articles or articles that are ready to go out. Um, And that can be a challenge, obviously, to make time for that, but it's also a great test of um, your ability to produce that kind of scholarly work and also whether you're going to enjoy it. So if you try to write a law review article as a grown adult who is busy in practice and you find it excruciating, then this is not the job for you. Um, With the caveat that there also are opportunities in clinical teaching, and those can be a really beautiful fit uh, for people who have practice experience. So... Before we before we finish out, I'm going to go with a lightning round mm-hmm. here to end on some light notes. So fill in the blank questions. My favorite food is ice cream. My ideal Friday night is spent uh, lighting the Shabbat candles, having dinner with my family, and then chasing my kids around because their their current hobby is basically just sprinting around the house as fast as they can. I feel your pain <laughs> there. If I wasn't a law professor, I'd be. I think I'd either be a trademark lawyer or I'd be an English professor. If someone handed me $25 million today, (laughs) I would? I would give some of it away. I would put some of it in my kids' college accounts. And I think I would keep going to work because I really do enjoy it. That's, That's a testament to you loving your work. Ropes and Gray is? Ropes and Gray is my firm. It will always be my firm. I've been gone almost eight years, which is twice as long as I was here. And yet somehow when I talk about it, that still seems to be um, the way I articulate it is as though it remains my firm. So it's a lot of fun to be back today. And I appreciate your inviting me. That's great to hear. And before I let you go, I will give you a chance to plug uh, UNH for any alumni who may have children or friends looking to go to law school. Oh, great idea. Uh, I love UNH so much. It is a small school, which means we get to know all of the students really well. You can't slip through the cracks. It is absolutely beautiful. Uh, we just wrapped up our Black Ice Pond Hockey Tournament right across the street. It's obviously an awesome place to be in an election year, so there's a lot of excitement right now. Um, and intellectual property has, has been our specialty since we were founded. So um, it's something that's always been a strength. We have a really deep bench of IP faculty. We have a lot of students who are passionate about IP. Um, and then in addition to our traditional residential JD program, we have a new hybrid online program where people come in um, a couple times a year, but they do most of the work online. So if you have a, a day job in a different city, if you have Um, young children that you're taking care of, you can get a a distance JD with some in-person time. Um, And the the inaugural class um, is doing great and we're having a great time. We have about 40. I think we probably have 40 40 more coming in next year. 
Um, so it, it's been a grand experiment that I think is going really well. And anybody who has questions about UNH Law is welcome to reach out. I'd love to talk to you. Alex, thanks. It was great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Um, everyone, remember, follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Lex Lanham. For all of our Ropes & Gray alumni out there, please visit our alumni website at alumni.ropesgray.com to stay up to date on our alumni happenings, as well as the latest news about the firm and our lawyers. You can also subscribe and listen to this series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.